Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. And I sound really nasally today because I have this sinus thing going on, so you're going to hear... Thanks for making my whole congregation think <laughs> that you are giving me COVID and I'm going to give it to them. No, no one COVID. has COVID. It's no one COVID. has COVID. It's not COVID. Or anything else. We're all fine. Right. Um, so I, I can just already tell that I have a lot of big emotions about all the things that we're going to talk about today. And it is tricky to be honest about the things we're going to talk about today because the accusation that gets hurled at women all the time is that you are too emotional and you are not rational and you are letting your feelings you know, carry you away, which means if you have a strong reaction to something, you have to, you know, you have to stuff it down. You can't be honest about that, which means a lot of things that rightfully provoke strong reactions, um, continue to happen because they don't the natural consequences of the behavior isn't felt by the person exhibiting the behavior um, and I know that as a black man you can have nothing uh, in common with what I'm saying I know you know just Zero, dig none. deep and see if you can possibly yeah, I'll try to, try to pretend to understand um, anyway so just a warning um, that it's it's an intense conversation this week but what is astonishing you, friend? Well, before we get into what we're thinking about, I, I'm astonished uh, as we, um, as a church, as uh, Dorado Church, continue to go through this very difficult season um, in which, you know, membership, not just membership, but attendance is down and um, energy seems to be down. I mean, we're really at a place of struggle um, because uh, most of our congregation is older and um, we lost a lot of people mm -hmm. during... Um, quarantine and COVID and folks didn't come back and um, there's lots of work to be done. And yet, at the same time, we're having some of the best worship experiences mm -hmm. on Sunday um, in my uh, six, almost seven years there. And there's this, there's this, um, there's this irony that things feel hard. Things feel like they're withering, mm -hmm. like we are somehow on a losing team mm -hmm. and the clock is ticking and bad things are inevitable. And yet in the midst of that, we'll be singing like this past Sunday, we were singing just a simple chorus. And I <laughs> I wanted to just stop and say to everyone, isn't this great? Mm -hmm. Isn't this, do y'all feel, this is fantastic. Um, and I've started, um, um, you know, when I'm not preaching or praying uh, in front of the congregation, I go to the front pew and I worship. And so I'm looking for like everyone else. And so I'm there up front and um, looking forward at the screen and, I'm just in the joy of the moment. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Lord, if 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 this if this is it, if this congregation mm -hmm. never grows uh in, in terms of numbers, if the pews um are 
are are are never full again. At at some point, it feels like it's okay. Mm-hmm. It, it is okay, um, and um, as as hard as these times are, there's something that just feels um, right. Like we are we are where we are supposed to be, mm-hmm. and we're going to continue to walk through this season. Um, there, honestly, there are days when um, I cry and whine and moan um, and want things to be different. But most of the time, I think God, God has not left us. Mm-hmm. God has not abandoned us. And it, it is okay. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like healthy detachment to me. I mean, just to be able to say, look, the the work um, that God has called me to do, my faithfulness to that call is my gift to God. But at the end of the day, God is God and I am not. <laughs> and at the end of the day, no matter what um, the institutional future is of the church I'm serving, the church <laughs> is fine. <laughs> and I know that because it's not up to me. And the gates of hell can't prevail against it. So, you know, salvation itself is not at stake. And I think that's how we can get to the place of being like Paul and just saying, if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, like we have this peace that we, and it passes understanding. And I think it's hard to, it's hard to, it's hard to lead faithfully if, from a place of anxiety. So, you know, you just have to be deeply centered on the victory of Christ and not in a sense that you don't care. I mean, you have to be able to care and to love, but also just feel like, look, I am going to be as faithful as I know how to be in this season. And if that is enough for God, then it has to be enough for me, um, regardless of what it looks like. And I think for me also just being able to say, look, I understand that failure is an option (laughs) that certainly what looks like failure is an option and I personally don't have shame about failing um, in my pursuit of faithfulness because I think um, if we just are afraid to fail then we will obviously just domesticate our our lives Um, so Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. I mean, I can remember having a moment like that um, er, early here. We used to um, host a dance ministry that has since spun off into its own space. And it's beautiful. But once, you know, really early in their tenure here, they had a, um, a worship concert in the sanctuary and um, there are just families there to see it. And these, you know, girls and women were just dancing before the Lord and, and at one point like dancing up and down the aisle. And I just had this real sense of like, God, if, if this is all there is, it's enough, like it's enough. And, um, I think it's really important that we live in a world that says, you know, if it's not big and it's not visible and it's not celebrated, it's worthless. And that is just not, the message of the gospel. And so, I mean, I think that's, that's real power to be able to hold it all so lightly gives you the power to, to be faithful, even when the risk is real. 
because um, for us, there are worse things than dying, both individually and institutionally. There are worse things than death. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really great. So what's astonishing you? Well, mine's not so happy. I, I <laughs> these past couple weeks, uh, there was a policy um, debuted by the current presidential administration about um, student loan debt forgiveness. And I have just been watching on, I've just been watching the world, the nation process this news. And it's been astonishing to me watching how Christians um, process this news. Um, Because I think as a as a citizen, people can have all kinds of opinions and that, I mean, it's fine, obviously. And I definitely think that people, uh, economists and people with specialized knowledge that I don't have can have, um, you know, discernment about the, maybe the unintended consequences of this policy or just the strengths and weaknesses of the policy or, you know, I, I don't, I, I concede all of that. But a lot of the objection um, has been coming from either Christian leaders or people who um, really center themselves publicly as being a follower of Jesus. And so when you hear those people explicitly rail against debt forgiveness, um, it's astonishing because it it is a, a way that people are, I think... And, and far be it for me to criticize another man's servant. But, you know, the whole heart of the Christian tradition is debt forgiveness. Um, so obviously, and people are really quick to say like, well, that's spiritual debt and this is economic debt. As if economic debt is more serious than spiritual debt. So that's the first thing, right? It's just interesting to me. But you know, the gospel is founded on this idea that we are not worthy and we are not righteous, that we actually are wretched and that God in God's providence and goodness has, has displayed God's greatness by forgiving and lifting the burden of sin and forgiving the debt of sin and welcoming us, crediting us, literally crediting us with the righteousness of Jesus. A debt we could not pay. So so the idea that getting something you don't deserve is offensive, I really can understand how as an American that's true because the ideology of America is, hey, this is a meritocracy. Everyone in this country gets what they deserve. There's liberty and justice for all here. So people who are rich are rich because they deserve to be rich, because they have more value, because they offer something to society that society needs. And so we reward them with wealth, and that's fair. And people who are poor in American ideology is you're poor, it's because you're lazy and worthless, and you're a drain on society, and you deserve to suffer. And hopefully your suffering will teach you to care and work hard. Um, but if not, oh, well, because if you wanted different, you'd behave different, right? That's American ideology. So in that ideology, debt forgiveness is offensive, and it is unjust, and it is um, destructive, because if you think everybody gets what they deserve, then if you reward someone for crappy behavior, if they are suffering literal debt slavery because of their poor decisions, and you forgive that slavery, then you're encouraging them in their poor decisions, and that is really destructive. So I understand that if you are a secular person who believes that America already is 
everything that its founding documents set out to be, then I understand why you would be offended by death. I really do. Um, but if you are a believer, then I just think it's really interesting if you are offended by the idea of debt forgiveness. It makes me wonder how you could possibly receive someone in your community. The, how could your community be a safe place for someone to practice repentance and come to new life in Jesus, right? And I think it's interesting when people want to make this differentiation between spiritual debt and economic debt, because it just betrays that you don't, and, and part of this I think is the fault of pastors and Christian leaders, that we have not um, educated the body of Christ about the full witness of scripture because debt forgiveness and limits on wealth are built into the Mosaic Covenant. And so it's interesting that there are very few Christians who aren't going to know about the Mosaic Covenant's prohibition against eating pork, but that people do not understand that in the Mosaic Covenant, people were not allowed to charge interest for a debt. So if your neighbor needed some money, you could lend your neighbor some money, but you could not profit off of your neighbor's misfortune. And so the idea that you know, we look at that Reformation and we think about, oh, these reformers were so faithful and they were based only on scripture and they left the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church behind. Um, but they certainly bowed to the economic interests of their backers and said, hey, let's take everything in scripture seriously except for these prohibitions on interest. And and those are those don't mean anything to us. So I'm not saying that the reformers are terrible. I'm not saying that America is terrible. I'm just saying we have blind spots to the parts of scripture that convict our lifestyle. And we all have this very human tendency to say, other people's sins are really offensive and really serious to God, but my lifestyle and my sins are just not that bad or, or, or don't exist. And I think the reality is the kingdom of God, um, is in opposition to the kingdoms of this world. And the values of the kingdom of God are in opposition to the values of this world. And um, I think that's what you see in this, uh, in just people's reaction to debt forgiveness. Again, I want to clarify, I'm not an economist and there really might be, I'm, there, I'm sure there are many, there are many implications of this policy that I don't understand. Um, and so maybe it is bad policy, but I think for me, when people talk about debt forgiveness, that makes my ears perk up. Um, and I also just want to point out that, you know, when we forgive debt to corporations, nobody says anything. When we, you know, forgive um, obligations of wealthy individuals towards paying taxes, nobody thinks that's weird. When people, you know, some of the same people who are railing against student loan forgiveness got complete forgiveness of the PPP loans during the pandemic. And so it's just interesting how offended we can be at the good fortune of other people. Um, yes, because our society is set up, like many other societies, to um, see one another as competitors. We a are, scarcity we're, model. Yes, we're not in this together, but your well-being is a threat to me. It harms your, me. Your flourishing means I lose something. Right. And so if your debt is forgiven, then um, 
yeah, that, that then it becomes flip. my debt, yes. right? Which is really interesting. Just, I mean, again, I understand that there are things that there are economies that have collapsed and they're bad for everyone. And so I, I understand that I don't understand what sound fiscal policy is. Um, and I, but I think it's really interesting when just the principle of debt forgiveness is offensive to Christian, particularly when it's only offensive at certain segments of society, like when we are offended when the poor are forgiven their debt, but not offended when the wealthy are forgiven their debt. I think it just shows how much our our view of reality is shaped by the secular culture as opposed to um, the the thought of scripture that, and you know, because a scarcity mindset is in direct opposition to Shalom, which is the beginning of creation and the end of creation in the kingdom of God is that creation is restored and reordered in such a way that my flourishing is inextricably bound up with your flourishing. And I actually can't flourish unless you are flourishing. And I think, you know, it, it, it the natural world, this is, we, we see this all the time that this is just the case that when, when one part of the um, ecological landscape is threatened, it has all of these invisible and unintended connections and consequences that lead to the whole, to the whole being threatened. And I think, you know, as it is in the physical world, it is in the spiritual world. So, but it just makes me sad that we so fundamentally misunderstand our own truth. <laughs> yeah, I'm reminded that uh, parable that Jesus told about the man who owed a king a great debt, and the king was, I believe, going to throw him into prison, and he said to the king, have patience with me, and mm -hmm. I'll pay you back everything, and the king had patience with him and forgave the debt, mm -hmm. and then um, he went out and found um, his equal, his fellow servant who owed him just a tiny amount of money, and... Um, like he he put hands on him. Like I think he grabbed yeah, him by grabbed the throat, him, threatened yeah. to throw him in prison. And um, uh, and then someone went and reported that to the king, and the king was furious. How could you, of all people, who had been forgiven this great debt, not have had mercy mm -hmm. on someone who owed you just a tiny amount of money? And I think it's just a very illustrative of human nature that. We are formed by the systems that we live in, even when we live in a system that we experience as deeply harmful to ourselves. It's still just natural to our fallen natures to turn around and live in that same system towards other people. So, yeah. And, you know, I've heard people say uh, over the years that in many ways they think that there are a number of people because of the way they think, they're not, they think they will be happy in heaven, but yeah. probably not. I mean, if you, if you just take Dallas the, Willard is, says that, is that Dallas Willard? Well, yeah. Um, you know, the, the idea of the year of Jubilee, mm -hmm. debts are forgiven, slaves set free. Um, if you think of, of heaven as this um, uh, uh, realm of peace and shalom and, um, everyone flourishing if that makes you angry if that upsets you now right then w w 
what does heaven look like to you? Well, I think, da- yeah, Dallas Willard says, if you don't want to live in the kingdom of God here on earth, what makes you think That's you want it, it for yes. eternity? Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's just a way, a posture of life, of submission to God, of like joyful acceptance of God's will, of loving enemies and forgiving debts. And this is, you know, those who, I mean, and I, I think this is hard to talk about it because it can sound judgmental and I don't mean it that way. Um, cause I think we're all here at some points in our spiritual journey, but like, I think people who truly experience themselves as forgiven delight in being yeah. agents of mercy to other people and, and people who have never truly experienced themselves as being forgiven a great debt, you know, then it's just harder. <laughs> um, but if you really, if you, if your psychological truth is I was bound for destruction and I deserved it and I have been released, then it's your delight to release others. And, and if that's not been your experience, it's hard it's hard to rejoice in people not getting what they deserve when you and feel if like your thinking is I built this, I made myself, no one helped me, I did this by myself, and you need to Right. Then yeah, death well, is. Well and I think be a lot offensive. of us like we have this insider outsider mentality, so we feel like God is good and God is merciful to me, but kind of because I I, I earned it, right? I earned it through my faithfulness. I earned it through my praise. I earned it through my devotedness to God. Like God is helping me, but not, I mean, it, it's again, it's it's seeing this great gulf between what we owe and what other people owe and feeling like our worth exists in that gap instead of really soberly accepting the truth that the way you see the biggest sinner in your life <laughs> Is the way that God sees, well, is the way that God should see you, right? So, um, but if you think you're ontologically different than the people who disgust you, then you're still operating in in the thought world of the fallen creation. So it's hard. And I think we, but that's why it's always been my experience that some of the most faithful and fully delivered believers I know are people in recovery because they've just experienced in their own flesh, their powerlessness over the life choice that was destroying them that you call sin of the way that that choice has not just wounded them, but wounded those around them of how they've just done things that can never be forgiven. And they're stuck in this thing and they can never get out. And then having this deliverance and, you know, you just, it is, it's resurrection and they experience that in their flesh, which then I think gives them wisdom to perceive it, um, in, in towards other people and, and how much more so it will be in the fullness of eternity. And so it's, you know, it's just interesting, but it, it has been really, um, and not surprising, but just sad to watch people process it. And, um, because I think I, I do authentically, when someone says I'm, a, they are a Christian, I just think like, hooray, like, I don't know, like, that's really cool. Like, I don't question that. Um, and I don't get any joy out of questioning it. Cause I know that people intend to be authentic Christians. I just know when Paul talks about teachers having a special burden, I'm like, oh, these are people who have been malformed. I think these are people who've been malformed by bad teaching, sure. um, bad teaching offered by some consciously and some unconsciously, but some consciously by pastors who are just trying to build up an institution to get some power. And so we're shaving the edges off of the offensiveness of the cross 
in order to get, you know, sort of saying to people, come on in and your wants and wills and desires and the way you see the world, it's already okay. And God's just going to come in and co-sign on this. Um, and it's not true. Yeah. And we can get you some fire insurance in the process. Yeah. yeah. Let me ask you a question about all this. Um, how much of the pushback, how much of the criticism do you think is just partisan politics? People saying, you know what, I am going to criticize this debt forgiveness policy just because it's coming from this particular administration that happens to be a party that I, um, I, I don't agree with, I'm not a part of, um, I don't vote for, and so um, I, I'm, I'm just going to say no. And if it had been a party that they're affiliated with, might be on their feet. I mean, I that, that's also problematic. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, honestly, I think it has more to do with just anxiety. Like, I just think that there are people in positions like of scarcity power. scarcity mentality. Correct. Anxiety. Like, and I think just mm -hmm. people feel, people are told constantly that the world is falling apart and that America is under attack yeah, yeah, and that, yeah, yeah. You, you know, that, and so people tend to, because I, I think that there are people who ideolo ideologically would, would, some people who I think are really would love for their neighbors to get a good turn. But when someone who holds a PhD in economics says this is terrible and destructive, they go, okay, well it must be right. Like there's just, I think there's times that we just really buy into the suffering that exists right now in our country is just the very best that's possible. And so we, we, it's irresponsible to even try to think about a different way to live together in community and anything else is just, naive and foolish and stupid and shallow thinking. And so I do think that for some people, it's just a matter of, you know, believing that certain kinds of policies have gotten us to the level of um, prosperity that some people, I think, will falsely label that, you know, I think that there are a lot of people who believe there's a level of prosperity in this country that really does not exist. Um so I, yeah, I think, I just think we have a huge um, deference to wealthy people in this country. And we just think if someone is wealthy and powerful, then their pronouncements are godlike. And who are we to question them? And so I don't think we think critically. Um, and I, I mean, I think obviously everyone in the world, myself most definitely included, like we have, tend to have deference towards people whose ideology lines up with ours and more critical nature to people who don't. But I, I also just think it's deeper than that. I mean, I think that it's the reason that people end up in the different political camps that they end up in. Um, I, I think there are very few people who want their neighbors to suffer. But I think there are a lot of people who believe sincerely that if certain people's um, burdens are lifted, the whole society will come crashing yes, down. Yes, I think that is um, much of the challenge with our public schools. Mm -hmm. I don't think um, wealthy suburban parents really want bad things for impoverished children. But if children in impoverished schools come up... <laughs> There may be, there will be more competition, whatever word you want to use, for their children. Like, well, 
they get into this parenting mindset that says, well, as long as my kid does well, as long as things are good for my kid, I don't wish harm on anyone else, but I, I don't want to go out of my way. Right. I don't want... Um, well, and you see it all the time. Like People talk about like, I mean, like family first, right? Which is, I just think, a troubling phrase for Christians to kind of casually throw around because the reality is the heart of our ethic is neighbor love, is enemy love, and it is not putting cl clan and tribe first. Like that is a given in our culture, but but we have an alternative worldview that says actually the way I love my family is to love my neighbor and the way I love my children is to love my enemies. That's how I secure the best for my children is to secure the best for their neighbors. And you know, that's just a, a radically alternative worldview. And when we abandon that, we abandon our distinctiveness. Yeah, a moment of confession. The other night I was watching the evening news and um, it was stated that we as a country are giving uh, 13 billion, I think that's the number, 13 billion uh, to aid the Ukrainians. And my first thought was, <gasps> Will there, will there be enough? That's a, that's a lot of mm -hmm. money. And um, I, I had to talk back to myself. There, there is enough. Mm -hmm. There is enough. We, we can give that to help those people, mm -hmm. and there will be enough. Because of this narrative right now that the sky is falling, right, mm -hmm. um, you, you do have to get a grip on yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, and I just think it's easier to believe in scarcity than it is to believe in the abundance of God. And when we when we raise, we have to really question, I think, what it means to want a good life for our children. Like, what does it mean to me for my child to be successful? If it means earning a certain income level, <laughs> then that's going to lead you down one path. If if what my child flourishing to me looks like my child um, is rich in relationships and has a meaningful life and learns to turn to God in times of joy and in times of sorrow, like if that's what it means, then it completely shifts entirely how I parent my child and how I experience trials and tribulations in our journey, right? So if my child has a good teacher, that's a blessing and I can thank God. If my child has a quote bad teacher, then I can say, okay, Lord, show me how I can like support my child, teach my child deep spiritual lessons about, you know, um, overcoming suffering or like returning good for evil or, you know, I mean, just, but what do I want? And I think that for me, um, it, it, all the decisions that we make, um, with our kids, try to think about, do I, if I believe in scarcity, I would make different choices, but I don't believe in scarcity. So what I believe is that we have been given enough so that I know my child will be able to go to college. That's a huge blessing. It's a huge blessing. I know that that's possible for my child, whether that's starting off for two years at CPCC or going, I mean, like it doesn't, I know no matter where my kid goes to college, that is a blessing and an opportunity. So I don't have to, I, I can prize her, their mental health. <laughs> I can, you know, meet them where they are in their struggles. I can release them from the pressure of having to be, you know, straight A students who excel at every single thing under the sun. I can look at them as whole people. I can know that even if they don't go straight from high school 
straight into college. That's not a catastrophe that what God has for them, no one can take from them. So I can support them in trusting that God is good, even when the future is uncertain. And if I can't teach my kids that, then they'll never be secure. Mm. They'll never be secure. Um, And a lot of times, you know, I think about what's happening in Ukraine and I really, I feel very unsafe. I think about what's happening in Syria. I think about what's happening in Haiti right now. And I just think, you know, with the exception of Haiti, I mean, people were living fairly stable, normal, analogous life to my own. And then something happened on a geopolitical stage. And in an instant, like that all changed and no one is coming to save them. And there's no, there is no promise that God has made me that says that can't happen in my backyard. Um, so what that means is my security has to be deeper than um, even my safety. And and that changes the way I cherish and love my children. It changes what I worry about. Um, so I think, I don't know, um, I just think that as parents, we do really well to ask ourselves, what does it look like? for like What are my hopes for my child? And am I just taking what everyone around me hopes for their children and saying, I want that for my kid too? Or am I really seeking the Lord and saying like, no, what, are, what kinds of prayers am I praying for my child? What constitutes a good life in God's eyes? And how does that align or not align with what the culture teaches a good life is? And how am I being intentional in parenting my values and not my fears? And recognizing that every choice we make for our kids costs something and every choice has risks. And so let's not just assume that the risks everyone takes are inevitable and the costs everyone pays are reasonable. And let's just be really thoughtful about um, maybe I want to pay different prices and take different risks to line up with kingdom values. So We should talk about what we're thinking about because we've already been talking for a long time and we are going to run out of space. Very good. What we're thinking about. I think we're thinking about the same thing. Well, right? maybe. Uh, they're, well, related. they're related. I'm thinking about uh, Matt Chandler, uh, who is the pastor, lead pastor of the Village Church in Dallas, Texas. And uh, recently it was announced that he would be stepping down for an indefinite period of time. Um, he has been asked to do that by the elders of the church. As um, a, dis- a disciplinary measure, it's, like it's been said specifically, this is a disciplinary measure. He said, did something uh, wrong. It's both disciplinary and for his development. I think those were the two words they used. And here's here's the backstory. Uh, one Sunday after worship, he was greeting people, and a woman came up to him and said that she was uncomfortable with the way he was... Um, direct messaging a friend of hers, I believe, on Instagram. And so that, um, he said, uh, it, it disoriented him. So he immediately went to the elders of the church to share that information and to um, his wife, Lauren. And uh, the elders decided to investigate uh, the situation. Uh, they hired a law firm, uh, 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 Pastor Matt uh, turned over cell phone, all devices, and so this law firm went through um, his devices and this conversation uh, with this uh, woman, and um, their language uh, uh, said that they found nothing in the relationship that was romantic or sexual. 
And I will add that both Matt's wife and this woman's husband knew about their conversation back and forth. Uh, but the elders of the church felt that Matt was in violation of First uh, Timothy 3 about the requirements of elders. Um, and I want to get their language correct. They said that they were uncomfortable with the frequency and familiarity of the messages. And so they have asked him to step down. Now, um, after they made the announcement, uh, uh, many in the church world and outside the church world said, okay, there's got to be something more. There's got to be something more than he was um, having a lot of private messages with a woman who was not his wife. There's got to be some deeper scandal. And so people investigated further, and I think there, there might have been some jokes, um, I think, about alcohol um, that, were, that some labeled as crude, and um, that has been it. So um, uh, this is troubling to me um, because on the one hand, you have churches and ministries and leaders who, if there's any hint of scandal, it's denial, deflect, right? there's nothing to see here, uh, they will not deal with it. This seems to be almost the opposite. It's, I, I like their um, attempt to be very transparent. They, they were seeking, and I watched the announcement of the, the chair of their elder board and Matt. I watched their uh, announcement to the congregation about what was happening, and they were seeking to be very transparent. And yet, I can't help but sense or believe that he is being asked to step down for this period of time simply because he talked, he talked to, to a, a woman. woman. He talked to a, that he violated the quote unquote Billy Graham rule. Right. And Billy Graham said that he was never uh, alone with a woman, never in a room alone with a woman that wasn't his wife. And never had, you know, like private conversations with a woman that wasn't his wife. And it seems that this is reinforcing this idea that men and women in the church cannot be friends. That we really cannot um, do as the Bible says and see ourselves as brothers and sisters. That, that, um, that men have to be protected uh, from women, that men cannot help themselves, that we just cannot trust women uh, and be friends with women, it it's just really troubling to me. Well, I mean, I just think it points out a few things. I mean, A, if he had been having these conversations with another man, no problem. Zero. So clearly the problem is that sh her gender, her gender is ontologically a sin. So he must be um, refraining from the sin of knowing her because she, because her gender is a failure. And I, I think we want to believe and um, that 
that there is a difference between between being misogynistic and between complementarianism. So like we want to say, look, it's wrong to believe that men are better than women, but it's fine to have, say, a Catholic hierarchy that explicitly reserves all positions of power and authority for men above women. That's fine. That's just a matter of personal belief or, you know, cultural belief. And and it's fine to have a um, a teaching, to have an understanding of God that says God is male, that female is a derivative form of humanity, that um, that men and women are not equal, are not the same, are dangerous to one another, and that for everyone's sake, women need to take, um, a, need to not be their full selves <laughs> because it's their presence is corruptive. And we want to say like, oh, there's such a big difference between say the Taliban saying a woman needs to be covered from head to foot, right? And we look at that and go, well, how could you? There's right. no difference between that right. and saying a man cannot have a conversation with a woman without it being a sin. And and I think like the whole point of coming alive in Christ is that we have our humanity restored. restored. And what I want is for, I do not want, I, I want to be seen as a human, right? Imagine that. I don't want, and, and I think, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to make this podcast from the beginning is because we wanted, we thought it would be actually helpful and healing for the world to see a friendship between two humans, one of whom happens to be male and one of whom happens to be female. And our gendered experiences of the world do change, you know, what we see in scripture and the wisdom that we have. And, and we enrich one another in the same way that it's helpful to see a friendship between a human who is black and a human who is white. And that, you know, both of these, the distinctions between us are differences and they're beautiful and they are embodiments of the image of God, um, but they're not, they, they don't belong in a hierarchy, right? They're just a spectrum of humanity and that knowing one another and being friends with one another and having a Christ-centered friendship allows us to more fully know Christ. And I just think we want to say like, oh, complementarianism is fine and it's benign and it's not. And I think this is a perfect example of that. that and I also think it's an example of, you know, it's just sort of the tension between on the one hand, leaders and shepherds of congregations need to be able to listen and absorb critical feedback. When somebody comes with a concern, you can't just dismiss it. Um, but you also can't let the entire congregation's value and mission be determined by the least spiritually mature person in the place, right? And so sometimes people come, you need a position of openness where people can come and say, I have a concern. Because sometimes, oftentimes, like the leadership just needs to know you're not seeing this and you need to be able to receive it and deeply, soberly reflect on it and see what you have to learn or how you need to shift and change. And sometimes when someone comes and says, I need to have a, I need, I have a concern our pastor's been having a conversation with a woman as if she's a person, you need to be able to say, there's not a scandal here. And the and I know they're saying like, well, we just want to protect, you know, we just want to put a hedge about this, like this wasn't a problem, but it might have led to a problem. And so we're protecting everyone in the system. But you don't see the destruction that you're causing between women who just walk away from the church because they're like, Jesus 
doesn't see me as fully human. I don't see it. I can't, I can't be my whole self here. I have to live in fear that someone is going to make an accusation of me for, I, I don't even know what, I can't talk to people. I, I can only talk to half the congregation and we don't see how this is also, I mean, obviously it's easy to see how this harms women. We don't see how deeply this harms men that we need one another. There Absolutely. are things that we can't, we cannot even imagine the shalom world that God is restoring unless we can begin to listen deeply to the ways people other than ourselves experience reality. And if we can't do that because we can't be in conversations with one another, I mean, that's just devastating. And I, I think this happens in, in religious institutions that are explicitly misogynistic. It happens in religious institutions that are complementarianism. So complementarianism is just benign patriarchy. It's the patriarchy. It's just remarketed and rebranded. And it happens in um, congregations that are egalitarian too, right? That Absolutely. say, we understand that these things are the same, but we all still walk into systems with certain conscious and unconscious biases about who can really be trusted, who is actually a critical thinker, who who, who is trustworthy and who isn't. And we're influenced by these biases even when we don't want to be. So, I mean, it happens everywhere and God is gracious and shows up everywhere. But I just think... This is just so tragic and sad, and it's so sad the way that this, um, you know, that this action, which I'm sure everyone involved doesn't see it as being punitive towards a woman, and maybe they even think like now we're finally holding a man accountable for his actions, but it just infantilizes and dehumanizes not just the women involved in this situation, but every woman everywhere, um, every person who has that institution help shape their worldview and their view of the kingdom of God is now buying into this idea that women are a threat that needs to be controlled and neutralized instead of a full human that you can walk alongside and learn with and from and share with as well. Yeah, so... One of the things I try to do as an African-American man is um, identify um, just in terms of ethnicity. And I mean, I fully understand because it's my experience that people have certain stereotypes about black men. Um, and whenever I walk into the room, before I say or do anything, that those are conscious or subconscious people's heads right and that affects how I live move and have being in the world it just does it affects my internal dialogue and I can only imagine that for women if the church specifically is saying the problem we have with you and and specifically with our male leadership is that your very presence just by walking to into the room, before you do or say anything, you are a temptress, right? That that has to have such a horrible effect on inner dialogue, how you live, move, and have being in the world. I can only imagine um, the kind of damage this is doing. It's just reinforcing 
um, stereotypes. Well, and I, I think that what is really um, the lie that is really um, powerful right now in our culture is the idea that um, equality and mutual submission and walking alongside one another as humans created in the image of God, that somehow that is being portrayed as like a secular progressivism creeping into the church instead of the reality is like, no, no, no. That's the radical core of the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? Is that there is no longer Jew, Greek, um, slave, free, male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the radical core, right? And the world around the church was this patriarchal, hierarchical um, structure that the church subverted. And then when the church became, you know, when the devil's signature move of Constantinianism happened, when the Roman emperor converted and became a Christian, then all of a sudden there were aspects of secular culture that Christianity said, okay, well, now we're okay with this because this this kind of oppression or these power moves are now for us and not against us, and we're going to use them for good. And you can't do it. The ends never justify the means in the Christian tradition, right, ever. And that's what we have to understand. That's what the cross should teach us, right, that everyone, everyone who crucified Jesus told themselves and many believed that they were doing it for the greater good. This man is a threat to our survival as an ethnic minority. This man is a threat to the larger peace. So this violence is righteous because it will end violence, right? Like that is what the cross shows us is that humans do not, cannot, and are not meant to have the power of life and death, period, end of story. And and we continue to say, though, there are some things that are evil when they're done to us, but are justified when we do them to others. And the the revelation of Christ, the communities that were created in Christ were radically countercultural when the Christian community was not in power. But when the Christian community became the power players, all of a sudden they started conforming to this world and saying, like, well, some patriarchy is OK and some kinds of hierarchy are OK and just lost lost the revelation. And I think, you know, one of the ways that people convince believers to give up the fullness of their humanity, male and female, is to say, no, come back to the core of Christianity, which is women submitting to men. And it's not true. Um, But you can see how that accommodation happened and begins to creep in, even in the actual scripture itself. You can see it start to creep in, which I think is really important. People say, like, well, this must be true because it's in the Bible. And I'm going to say, friends, the Bible is not God. And Jesus did not say, stay here in Jerusalem until I give you a Bible and then follow it to the ends of the world. Jesus said, stay here in in Jerusalem until you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Bible itself says that the word of God is not the Bible. The word of God is Jesus. So you've got to look at the life of Jesus and we can have a conversation about whether or not you think Jesus was a complementarianist or an egalitarian. But that has to be what it's about, not about First Timothy, which do I believe was divinely inspired? Yes. Do I believe that it was divinely inspired in the context of the culture? Yes. Just like I believe that the scripture of um, Jephthah's daughter is divinely inspired, but I don't think it's um, performative. Like, I don't think that the me- the it's takeaway for that should be make a vow to the God. And even if it's a dumb one and harm someone, go ahead and keep it because it pleases God to murder your daughter. Like, that's not the takeaway. 
So I, I just think that whole situation is so sad and so destructive I'm in the of body that of story Christ. Where um, the disciples um, they find Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman at the well. Mm-hmm. Like I wonder if with that same scenario um, in the village church, did the disciples say, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't do ministry for take, a little while. Take a leave of absence, <laughs> Jesus. Now, I, I do want to say it is also true that living in a fallen world, it's not that there Boundaries aren't... Boundaries are necessary. Correct. And it's not that there aren't inappropriate correct. relationships yes. between men and women. There are inappropriate relationships with men and women. And I think that it behooves men and women to be really thoughtful about is any relationship in my life getting too much weight? Um, am I seeking my sense of well-being and joy and self from any one person, in, frankly, including your spouse? But definitely, you know, I have seen marriages destroyed by friendships between genders that became unhealthy for everyone involved. So I'm not, I'm not being naive, but I think we do this as, as Christians a lot. And you can see it in scripture that like, there's a Sabbath prohibition against like laboring in the field. And then because they want to protect people from sinning, they say, okay, it's not only a prohibition against laboring in the field, but it's also a prohibition against laboring in the house. And I mean, you just sort of say like, I'm going to forbid you from doing even more than God forbid you from doing to keep you safe. And that is being as God. Like God didn't say, don't talk to a woman. God never said that. So you shouldn't say that either because you're not God. Yeah, and it's just, it's a ridiculous idea, isn't it? Well, I mean, I think the sad thing is it's not ridiculous. There are just so many men and women who truly believe that they cannot be friends with any one of the other gender because they're just different versions of humanity. Every once in a while, not every once in a while, pretty frequently these days, I tune into um, certain um, YouTube channels dealing with um, dating and relationships because I'm I'm just curious about what people are saying these days because I'm I'm married and you know I've been out of the dating world for a while and it, there 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 does seem to be quite a bit of confusion right. about how men and women um, should relate to one another not only outside of marriage but inside of marriage as well and th- there there's there's a there's a conversation that needs to be had um, I. I was listening to someone in the so-called manosphere recently, and I, I, I just thought he had a real deep misunderstanding of feminism. So his understanding of feminism was this is a movement of women wanting to be men. And he could not see that it is, in fact, a movement of women calling for the full humanity of women and the humanity of men. Yeah, and I think it's so sad. I mean, that's the other side of this, is if you spend your whole life teaching men and women that you can't be friends with someone of the opposite gender, and then you wonder why marriages fail. Because you can't be friends. So once you know, people's hormones and, you know, sexual attractiveness or that once that shifts, there's nothing left because you have taught this person that the person standing next to them is not their equal, is not their helpmate, is not their ebon, is, you know, is just an object 
or a, you know, a transaction to be made or a role to fulfill. And that's why marriages fail or that's why people stay in marriages and feel so lonely inside the marriage because the person standing next to you, they just can't share whole huge caverns of their experience of the world because they believe the lie that this person is not a human in the way that you're a human. And so they can't understand and they have nothing to offer and I mean, I just think it's so, it's such a tragedy. And it is such a tragedy that the church lags behind the culture and the culture isn't getting any awards either, let me be clear. But that in so many ways, the Christian church lags behind the culture in just seeing women as human, yeah. just human. Anyway, we should stop talking because we've run out of time. You have to go and pick up your child. I do. You do. I so. should do that. Yes. <laughs> So we'll save the dancing Finnish prime minister for another week. Oh, that's right. We <laughs> I know. did not get to that I know. Story. We'll get to, I, we keep putting her off, but we'll, we'll get to her next week. Um, thanks for listening this week. And if you would like to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church at Dorida Prez, you should go look at their website, which is? DoridaChurch.FaithLifeSites.com. And if you uh, can also look at their podcast, which is the Derida Church podcast on Podbean website, you can also look at their YouTube channel um, and look at worship and messages, and you can join them for worship at 11 on Sundays. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, The Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can check out our YouTube channel and podcast, which is The Grove Church Um, And you can look for the green tree because there's a lot of Grove churches in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, Thank you all so much for listening to us. And we will talk to you next week.